Hi everyone, it's Taylor here again. Welcome to another slightly different episode of Square Mile of Murder. Um, Kat is still on the mend, but uh, getting better by the minute. But we wanted to make sure to give her enough time to fully recover. So, we are once again bringing you guys one of our Patreon bonus episodes. This episode from July 2020 is about a really famous case that a lot of you have probably heard of and uh, might be interested in, so we thought it would be a good fit for everyone to hear. We are planning to start recording new episodes this week, so stay tuned for that. Uh, I know we had previously announced that the theme of May would be cults, but obviously that's uh, gotten pushed back a little bit, so we are planning on diving into all things cults in June, so do stay tuned for that, and hopefully we will be back next week with a brand new episode for you. Uh, but do keep in mind as you listen to this one that it was originally recorded for Patreon, so if there are mentions of Patreon or it being a bonus episode, I believe this is one of the episodes that was billed as a mini-sode, even though it's not that short, and uh, we were calling them Square Meter of Murder uh, at the time, so <laughs> if you hear any of those things, uh, yeah, that's why. So... Please enjoy, let us know what you think as always, and we hope to be back with new episodes for you soon. I'm Kat. And I'm Taylor. And welcome to this month's Square Meter of Murder Minisode. Yeah, so today we've got a case that has gone unsolved for 73 years. It's the tale of a young woman moving to LA for a new start, only to be murdered in such horrendous circumstances that she would become more famous in death than she ever could have in life. We're, of course, talking about LA's most brutal and infamous unsolved murder, that of 22-year-old Elizabeth Short in January 1947, better known as the Black Dahlia murder. So, Elizabeth Short was born on July 29th, 1924, in Hyde Park, Boston, Massachusetts, my hometown. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was the third of five children born to parents Cleo and Phoebe Short. The family eventually settled in the Boston suburb of Medford, Massachusetts. Elizabeth's father, Cleo, built miniature golf courses. But when Which they stopped I love. Like, yeah, I, I love that that's like literally his job was building miniature golf courses. And but- all this stuff about just says it so casually, like, oh, yeah. He built miniature golf courses. Yeah. I want more details. Like, I want to know how one does that. Yeah, like, it, it's, it's not it's not like a, an everyday job that loads of people have, is it? No, I love it. <laughs> yeah, so he built miniature golf courses. But when the stock market crashed in 1929, he lost most of his savings, leaving the family 
Flatbrook. And in 1930, his car was found abandoned on the Charlestown Bridge in Boston. And it was assumed that he had jumped into the Charles River, committing suicide. Uh, Elizabeth's mother moved into a small apartment with her five daughters and worked as a bookkeeper to support the family. Uh, in her sophomore year of high school, Elizabeth dropped out of school. In late 1942, Elizabeth's mother, Phoebe, received a letter from her presumed dead husband, Cleo. Um, what a letter that would be to open, yeah. right? <laughs> so this is this is 12 years after he's supposedly died. Yeah, after he supposedly killed himself. So for 12 years, you've been living thinking that your husband died and then you just, just... A lovely letter out of the blue. Right. Hey, guess what? Um, I'm not dead. I just abandoned you all because we had no money. Yeah. So um, in this very surprising letter, he apologized for leaving and told her that he had started a new life in California, as as so many have done before. I mean, that wasn't uncommon at that time either, was it? No. I mean, the whole fake suicide bid and leaving your family, maybe that, not. Yeah. Not quite so common, but upping and leaving for California was fairly common, wasn't wasn't it? I mean, it's like the plot of every John Steinbeck novel. <laughs> yeah, actually, during the Depression, like especially mm. from the. Um, I'm lying. I've only ever read Mice and Men. <laughs> well, it is the plot of the Grapes of Wrath. Like, family is it? Yeah, goes from Dust Bowl, Oklahoma, to tries to get to California. Um. Buh, 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 buh. Oh yeah. Um. So in December of uh 1942, now 18 year old Elizabeth moved to Vallejo, California, to live with her father. Um. Now she had not seen him since she was six years old. I have some thoughts. By all means. That. Okay. Just. Aside from the fact that, you know, he up and left when she was six years old, pretended to kill himself. Um, I mean, yeah, there were plenty of people did kill themselves during uh, following the Wall Street crash, mm-hmm. which is a whole other conversation. Um, but she, he's a virtual stranger to her now. You know, she's not seen him for, for 12 years and now she's just going to up and leave and go and, and live with with this man who she really doesn't know even yeah. though he is her father she hasn't seen him for 12 years and he faked his own death because they were broke and i just i don't know it just seems very strange to me but yeah i mean but i suppose the early 40s was california still seen as this like land of promise and everything that it was during the 30s was it still a thing for people to migrate west yeah in a in a lot of ways and also because there was still that thing of like doctors telling people with respiratory problems to go move to california to fix your lungs because the cl- oh, the yeah. climate's drier and like that sort of thing so You've got, mm. you know, people moving to Palm Springs for for health reasons. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> um, and, you know, it's the golden age of Hollywood. So, oh, yeah. like, you know, 20s and 30s, you had a, a better chance 
of making it in the movies 40s you're starting to get into like the ultra prime time of the studio network so yeah like the the proper studio systems and how it was all integrated and everything yeah i'm just remembering you know history of cinema lectures from my undergrad degree (laughs) yeah really um fun times which if you want to listen to a podcast that has great crossovers between true crime and uh golden age hollywood listen to you must remember this because it's fantastic and um uh she does a great series about um charles manson in relation to hollywood which is like a really cool like different approach to the manson family that's not the standard thing that you hear everywhere else so highly recommend so elizabeth's father worked at the nearby mare island naval shipyard on the san uh, in the san francisco bay but arguments between father and daughter led to Elizabeth moving out less than two months later in January of 1943. And Elizabeth took a job at the base exchange at Camp Cook, which is now the Vandenberg Air Force Base near Lompoc. Uh, but this didn't work out for Elizabeth either. And around mid-1943, she left Lompoc and moved to Santa Barbara. Nice, nice digs there. Um, In September 1943, Elizabeth was arrested for underage drinking. And it's her mugshot from this arrest that's one of the really famous pictures of uh, Elizabeth Short. And, like, you've probably seen it if you've ever Googled this case. It's the one where she is uh, staring straight into the camera and has this sort of really wild, everywhere, curly hair. I always thought that was like a modeling photo, like from a, a shoot or a portfolio or something. I never realized until I did the research mugshot. that that it was a mugshot because yeah. she does look she does look very much like a modeling, like just the way she's staring at the camera, the face, everything. Yeah, no, I I was looking at it on Wikipedia last night, and I started to scroll by it, and then I was like, wait a second, is that a mugshot? <laughs> <laughs> yeah because i think the the does the wikipedia page have the full it has the two side by side yes yeah but yeah it's yeah just always assumed she was a model <laughs> <laughs> uh so following her arrest juvenile authorities sent elizabeth back to her mother's home in medford boston now i don't understand this because she's now 19 how can she be sent back to her mother's home yeah i'm not sure about that but um you know it didn't actually work so well no it didn't but <laughs> no, i just found that weird because obviously at 18 you are a you're a legal adult aren't you yeah yeah i don't know oh. why <sighs> maybe they weren't clear on her birth date that's the only thing i could think but yeah. i have no idea it is kind of yeah, I mean, confusing uh, Maybe she like, I mean, she could have just lied about a birthday for like a lesser charge or sentence. Or yeah, so she's now back at her mother's home. <laughs> yes, uh, but that didn't stick, and uh, instead, she moved down to Florida, where she had spent a lot of time in her teens. Um, there, she met decorated Army Air Force officer 
Major Matthew Michael Gordon Jr., who was training uh, for deployment to East Asia during World War II. Um, in 1945, Elizabeth told friends that Matthew had proposed to her in a letter sent while he was recovering from injuries he sustained in a plane crash in India. Elizabeth accepted Matthew's proposal, but before they could be married, he died in a second plane crash on August 10th, 1945, less than a week before the surrender to Japan and the end of the Second World War. Talk about bad luck. Yeah, that is not good timing. No. So almost a year later, in July 1946, Elizabeth moved back to California, this time to Los Angeles, to visit Air Force Lieutenant Joseph Gordon Fickering, who was stationed at the Naval Reserve Air Base in Long Beach, um, and the pair had met in Florida the previous year. Now, this goes against the whole narrative that's generally associated with the Black Dahlia murder in our popular culture, because everyone paints her as this like naive, small-town girl who moved to Hollywood in the hopes of becoming an actress, you know, which didn't happen, as it doesn't for most who moved to LA with dreams of stardom and she then ended up having to turn to sex work and was then murdered and I suppose that is like the preferred narrative and it's almost like fetishized at this point when it comes to like high profile murders of young women who are down on the look yeah I mean you just have to look at like the reaction to all these new works about Jack the Ripper and the five canonical victims because there's no concrete evidence that three of them I believe were actually prostitutes and like ripperologists are like losing their shit and the authors of books like the five are getting like death threats rape threats every day for making the story about the victims not this like really fetishized story that focuses on who the murderer was yeah yeah i that was always a story i thought i never really read much about elizabeth sharp but i so i always thought she you know was this like naive young girl straight off the Greyhound bus into LA? Yeah. Didn't work as it doesn't for most and she ended up turning to sex work and was murdered. And that's not the case at all. No. Yeah. And and actually there are no known um, acting jobs or credits for Elizabeth Short. Uh, and, you know, she, as we know, she wasn't like 16 years old and, and looking for stardom you know, she was older, she was 18, 19, possibly 20 at this point. Um, yeah, she'd already moved across country at, at least twice. Yeah, and she knew people there too, as yeah. well, which yeah, I think her, is... her father was... All right, San Francisco's not LA, but no. <laughs> in the grand scheme of the size of the USA, it's not that far away, is it? Yeah, and like she knew people in Long Beach, she knew people in... Vallejo, like, you know, she's yeah. she's been around. Um uh, so Elizabeth would spend the six months before her death in Southern California, mostly in the Los Angeles area, but she would also spend time in San Diego. And in the weeks before her death, that time in San Diego was spent with a twenty five year old married man named Robert Manley. There's always a married man, isn't there? Um and that's another thing that's used against her is how she was having an affair with a married man. Well, yeah, he's the one that's married, not her. 
Yeah, exactly. Not that I'm condoning it. No. But you know, but still. she's not the one cheating, he is. Exactly. And we don't know how much she knew about yeah. his wife. Yeah. So the couple returned to LA from San Diego on January 9th, 1947. And Robert Manley claimed to have dropped Elizabeth off at the Biltmore Hotel at 506 South Grand Avenue in downtown LA. And that Elizabeth was going to meet one of her sisters who was visiting. Um, patrons of the Crown Grill Cocktail Lounge at 754 South Olive Street, uh, approximately half a mile from the Biltmore, saw Elizabeth later that day. And this is the last confirmed sighting of Elizabeth Short before her death. There are also reports that she spent time during these six months at um, the Cecil Hotel. Oh, stay on Main. That's right. Just to add to that notoriety a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah, if you haven't already listened to our episode on Elisa Lam, who was found dead at the Cecil Hotel. Yeah. Is it nine years ago? 20... Anyway, it was our very first Patreon episode. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, yeah, go back and listen to that and, yeah. That's just another little story that adds to the the notoriety. Yeah, <laughs> so. just more true crime connections there. So on the morning of January 15th, 1947, Betty Bessinger and her three-year-old daughter were walking past a vacant lot in the Limit Park neighborhood in southern LA on their way to the local cobbler's shop. Betty originally believed that there was a discarded shop mannequin in the lot but then realised she was looking at Elizabeth's dead body. Yeah. Um, Imagine it, you, you know, you're just on a nice stroll out, going to the cobblers, get your shoes fixed, and then you walk past the dead body. Yeah. And she's got a three-year-old child with her. She's got a wee, wee baby. That's not good. It's not great. Um, so Elizabeth's body had been bisected, and was almost completely drained of blood, leaving her skin a pallid white, which is why, at first glance, Betty Bersinger thought that the body had been a shop mannequin. Um, medical examiners determined that she had been dead approximately 10 hours prior to being discovered, which would put her time of death at some point between late night on January 14th and the early hours of January 15th. Uh, her body was identified after her fingerprints matched those on police records for her arrest in 1943 for the underage drinking charge. As well as her body being bisected, Elizabeth's face had been cut from the corners of her mouth to her ears, creating an effect known as a Glasgow smile. Yes. That is one of the city's worst legacies. Yes. <laughs> Elizabeth's cause of death was cerebral hemorrhage resulting from homicidal violence and shock, which I think is all timey medical speak for blunt force trauma to the head. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she also had lacerations to her thighs and breasts, and sections of her flesh had been removed. There were ligature marks on her ankles, wrists, and neck, suggesting that she had been restrained during the assault. 
Due to the sheer brutality of Elizabeth's murder and the close proximity to Hollywood, the story quickly became a tabloid sensation. Um, And in fact, well-known Hollywood Golden Age reporter Aggie Underwood was one of the first people at the crime scene. And she would become famous for uh, reporting the case for the Los Angeles Herald Express and is actually widely credited with publishing uh, the Black Dahlia nickname. Um, oh, yeah. And her. That's interesting. In her autobiography, she wrote that the nickname came from info she had gotten from an LA homicide detective. Um, and there have been many other claimed sources, but. When I was writing the script, I purposely didn't put in where the nickname came from because there's so many different reports. Yeah. And I thought, it doesn't matter. Because that's another thing, like, it takes away from the fact that she was a real person and she was brutally murdered. Yeah. And this whole, like, say, fetishized narrative has just sprung up to the point that most people don't even know her name. Yeah. Most people wouldn't know if you said Elizabeth Short, like, who yeah. you're talking about. Um. So, uh, if you will remember a few weeks back when we covered the Patty Hearst kidnapping case... Uh, and we talked a little bit about the Hearst media empire. Well, 1940s, you know, that sort of time period was prime time for William Randolph Hearst. Um, and Hearst owned the Herald Express along with many other local uh California tabloids. So when all of Tinseltown found out about Elizabeth Short's murder, reporters from the Hearst Empire had a few tricks of their own to get information from the Short family. Um, A reporter rang up her mother, Phoebe, in Boston and told her that her daughter, Elizabeth, had won a beauty contest and they wanted more information from her mother. Um, And after they got that information, then they told uh, Phoebe that Elizabeth had actually been brutally murdered in Los Angeles. And that was how her mother and sisters found out about her death. Fuck those guys yeah that's just awful like yeah they say it's just awful there's not really anything else you can say so yeah just in case you thought that heartless journalism was a modern invention no sorry (laughs) it has been going on as long as print media oh yeah Uh, they also offered to pay phoebe's airfare and accommodation from boston to los angeles so that she could help police with their investigations But once she got to L.A., the newspaper kept her away from the police and any of the media until they had the exclusive interview they wanted from her. Lovely. Yeah. And I'm assuming that they didn't really have a lot of money as a family. So they were the only ones who would pay for her to actually be in L.A. Yeah. Now, many newspaper reports uh, also described Short as an adventuress who, quote, prowled hollywood boulevard in tight skirts and sheer blouses and other reports referred to the case as the quote sex fiend slaying i have so many thoughts (laughs) right that's what the actual fuck why is she a sex fiend uh well is it but is it is it saying that she's the sex fiend or is it saying that this is a slain committed by a sex fiend? Okay, I automatically jumped to the other. 
conclusion. <laughs> but considering they're saying like she prowled on no, the I agree with that. In, in the tight tight skirts and sheer blouses and you know all that kind of that to me is why I was like thinking that they were calling her a sex fiend. Yeah. Yeah. Just what the fuck. But either way, like it's it's not it doesn't add any value to and the case. It's not even true. No. So samples were taken at the autopsy, but results came back ne- negative for the presence of semen and it was concluded that Elizabeth hadn't been sexually assaulted nor had she even had sex in the hours before her death yeah so so that is just adding just another layer of like salacious gossip oh yeah 100 percent. the case now because this case happened more than 70 years ago and there was so much tabloid interest um you know it's now almost you know it, it has reached mythical proportions um there have been many many suspects over the years and we would need a whole series of episodes if we really wanted to go into all of them in depth um but uh we're not going to do that at least not right now um Uh, you never know maybe maybe in the future when we're like full-time podcasters at some point let's do a long-form podcast Hmm, what case has never been talked about before Um, so instead of doing that, let's just go over some quick numbers. Um, more than 300 local medical students were interviewed, uh, because it was suspected that the killer was either a surgeon or at least had a very good anatomical knowledge. Um, a phone book was sent to the LA examiner nine days after Elizabeth's murder and police interviewed 75 men whose names were in the address book. Oh, one thing that's worth adding is that there were pages torn out of the address book. Ah, yes. Which is why police believe that Elizabeth knew her murderer. Yeah. So the murderer had taken her address book and ripped out his own contact details. Yeah. Um, Additionally, more than 60 people have confessed to the murder of Elizabeth Short. There have, however, been 25, quote, viable suspects, according to the LAPD, uh, from transients who lived around LA at the time, and an unnamed queer female surgeon, randomly. Um, Like, what the actual fuck? They had a suspect, but they couldn't even get her name. uh, I don't know. That one's out there. Um, Filmmaker Orson Welles was suspected at one point, uh, as was gangster bugsy siegel as interesting as a crossover episode between elizabeth short a young woman just minding her own in la and bugsy siegel the godfather of la and very close associate of the five families of the new york mob would be that would be a very interesting crossover yep. there is actually very little to this argument yeah uh, because this argument is based on the fantasy or fallacy, however you wish to look at it, <laughs> that Elizabeth was a pregnant sex worker and it posits that Siegel and two of his henchmen had murdered her because she was about to reveal that the father of her illegitimate child was Norman Chandler, the chief of the Los Angeles Times. There's so but, much, like, that's so extra. 
Yes. <laughs> it's it's a novella. It's a short story. Yeah. <laughs> Literally. Uh, but there's no evidence that Elizabeth was or had ever been pregnant. Uh, another theory was that it was an attempt to frame Siegel by uh, West Coast mobster Jack Dragner, who wanted revenge for Siegel's attacks on his business interests since Siegel's arrival in California in the 1930s. So, this case really does have everything, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. Um. So yeah, instead of chasing down every half-baked crackpot theory and suspect, we're going to look at just a few of the most popular culprits. Save everyone a little bit of time here. Yeah. And our sanity. <laughs> I don't think we could do that. No. So the first suspect is, of course, uh, the last known person to see Elizabeth and spend time with her, 25-year-old salesman Robert Manley. Um, as we said before, Robert Manley was a married man who was having an affair with Elizabeth. The pair had spent time together in San Diego the week before Elizabeth's murder, but Manley claimed to have dropped her off at the Biltmore um, on January 9th upon their return to Los Angeles. Initially, Manley was considered the chief suspect by the LAPD, but after passing two polygraph tests and providing a sworn alibi, he was cleared of all involvement in Elizabeth's death. However, there's actually no such thing as passing a polygraph test. That's why they're not admissible in court. There is no universal indicator to prove you are lying or telling the truth. And on the same note, police officer's testimony isn't proof that you're lying or telling the truth either. <laughs> officers will often say to suspects that nobody can lie to them, that, you know, they can tell they have like a built-in lie detector over the, all their years on the force. A bullshit. Also, like, if the real lie detector isn't uh, uh, trustworthy, then I don't think the, uh, I have a built-in lie detector is all that trustworthy either, mm. is it? No. Um, yeah, changes in heart rate, body temperature, you know, sweating, skin flushing red, there can all be signs of lying, but we're all different and we all react differently under different stresses. And the readout of a polygraph test literally means fuck all. There is no such thing as a foolproof light detector. Yeah. And thankfully they are falling out of fashion pretty much. Yeah. Although they are still used, but they don't mean anything. <laughs> but this is not to say that Manly is innocent or guilty. But rather, just that a polygraph exam literally doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Uh, providing an alibi certainly does. Um, you know, especially when, you know, the justice system is built on the concept of innocent until proven guilty. If you have proof that you weren't there, that's pretty good indicator. Yeah. So on January 25th, 10 days after the discovery of Elizabeth's body, her handbag and shoes were found several miles from the site uh at which her body was dumped. Um, Robert Manley identified the bag and the shoes as belonging to Elizabeth. Uh, in the 1950s, doctors injected Manley with sodium pentothal, which uh, was for a long time believed to be a truth serum, and asked him about the murders. And uh, even with the sodium pentothal, he again denied all involvement in Elizabeth's murder. Yeah. Also, it's not a truth serum. No. It's just something you're shooting this guy up with and then asking him questions. I think 
I think things like sodium pentothal and uh, polygraph tests kind of rely on almost like a placebo effect. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In that, you know, you're not going to be able to lie if we inject you with this stuff. So there's no point trying. Or if you try and lie um, whilst you're hooked up to a polygraph machine. We'll know. You know, they're going to know. So rather than it actually being based on any science, it's... It's all, it's like it's very much the like psychological suggestion, yeah, kind of thing. Manley had previously been in the army, but had been discharged for a mental disability, and he subsequently suffered a series of nervous breakdowns and claimed to be hearing voices. As a result, he was committed to Patton State Hospital by his wife in 1954. And he uh, died on January 16th, 1986. Another popular suspect is Leslie Dillon, who at the time of Elizabeth's murder was a 27-year-old bellhop working in LA. However, Dillon had not been on the police's radar at all, and it wasn't until the following year that he inserted himself into the case by writing to LAPD psychiatrist Dr. DeRiva. Uh, by this time, Dylan was living in Florida, and he had read about the case in a magazine and decided to write to DeRiva with his theories on the case. In his letters, Dylan mentioned an interest in sadism and sexual violence in the hopes of authoring a book on the subject. He also offered up one of his friends, Jeff Connors, as a likely suspect. But over the course of their correspondence, uh, Dr. DeRiva began to believe that Connors did not really exist and that Dylan had committed the murder himself. Ooh plot twist. So Dylan quickly became LAPD's prime suspect and they began to close in on him. However, uh, in the process, they made an absolutely monumental error. Um, In 1949, he was due to be brought before a grand jury, but before that could happen, he was released um, because it turned out that police had illegally detained Dylan because they didn't have enough evidence to actually arrest him. Upon his release, Dylan quickly returned to his home state of Oklahoma, where he was able to avoid extradition to California by authorities because he was a relative of the governor at the time, Roy J. Turner. Um, It is widely believed that had the LAPD not fucked up the arrest um, and detention of Leslie Dylan, he would have been indicted and tried for the murder. Yeah, it's also worth noting that his wife was also supposedly a relative of a governor or the governor of Illinois or someone quite high up in like yeah, state government yeah. as well. So he was pretty well connected. Yeah, he was uh, well looked after. The third and final suspect we're going to talk about in this episode is the one who has become the favorite, <laughs> for lack of a better word is of course dr george hill hodell jr more commonly known as george hodell uh, one of the biggest proponents of george hodell as the murderer is one steve hodell his own son and retired lapd detective you know it's bad when your son is saying hey yeah look, look at dear old dad i mean this is like um the myra anderson case yeah that we covered a few weeks ago with you know, Sand- Sandra Brown's dedicated what, 20 years of her life to proving it was her father yeah. who was the murderer. So George Hadell was born and raised in LA 
and at the time of Elizabeth's murder, he was in charge of a venereal disease clinic in the city. And he supposedly breezed through medical school with very little trouble. He was described as being well-connected, which overseeing a, a venereal disease clinic in Hollywood would allow you to know everyone's business after all. And I'm sure lots of people would come to you to make sure it was kept quiet. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a, a high IQ and supposedly was very dashing. I don't see it personally. <laughs> Maybe it's just not my type. Maybe. Um, so there were many accusations of murder and rape made against George Hodel throughout the 1940s, some of which came from his own children. Um, and he fled the USA multiple times, eventually settling in the Philippines for 40 years from 1950 to 1990. Um, as well as Elizabeth Short's murder, Steve Hodel also accuses his father of murdering Jean French just three weeks after Elizabeth. Like Elizabeth, Jean suffered blunt force trauma and her body was found posed in a similar way, although she was not bisected and her face wasn't mutilated. Um, Jean's body also had the letters BD written on it in le- red lipstick, which some have taken to mean Black Dahlia. Um, and while this might sound a little flimsy, um, it's just one in uh, a whole catalog of reasons pointing towards George Hodel. So there were many letters sent to the press following the murder, supposedly from the killer, and the handwriting in these letters matched to George Hodel's. And the handwriting in these letters also matched the BD written on uh, Jean French's body following her murder. and it is also worth pointing out that these uh, handwriting experts have been uh, hired by Steve Hodel. So obviously, you know, I don't know how corrupt the world of handwriting analysis <laughs> is, but he's looking for confirmation bias. Yeah. When he's like publishing all his his research and his his theories. So if one of them said, oh, yes, it definitely is your dad and another one said ah well inconclusive you're gonna go with the one that said yeah yeah also in the empty lot where elizabeth's body was found there were empty sacks uh, that were the same kind that cement was delivered in and according to steve hodell his father had had the same kind of cement delivered uh, to their house on january 9th and that was the last day that elizabeth was ever seen alive so remember this Five days that are unaccounted for. Yeah, yeah. Four days. It's generally referred to as her, like, lost week. So it's, like... Five days. Five, six days. 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th. Yeah, she was... Yeah. Yeah. So five days. Now, I assume this comes from receipts that were found in later years. And, you know, he doesn't remember the exact sacks of cement (laughs) that were delivered to the home in 1947. Because I think Steve Hodel was five years old. He was very young. When Elizabeth was, was murdered, so... Yeah. Yeah. One would assume. Photos were found in uh, George Hodel's things, which his son Steve believes to be uh, photos of Elizabeth Short, although experts have not been able to determine this one way or the other. A black car was spotted near the empty lot around uh, the time Elizabeth's body was discovered, and George Hodel drove a black car, which fit the description of the one seen by uh, witnesses. Um, 
And as a doctor, George Hodel would also have had the anatomical knowledge needed to bisect Elizabeth's body so cleanly. But one of the most incriminating pieces of evidence comes from Hodel himself. In the month following Elizabeth's death, he was put under police surveillance and his house was bugged. And these bugs picked up the following uh, statements or conversation from Hodel. Uh, and he was heard saying, quote, Suppose and I did kill the Black Dahlia. They couldn't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. They thought that there was something fishy. Anyway, now they may have figured it out. Killed her. Maybe I did kill my secretary. Dude. <laughs> yeah. So the secretary in question was Ruth Spaulding, who police had previously suspected Hodel had murdered in 1945. So he was present when Spaulding overdosed and had burnt some of her belongings before calling the police. Uh, the case was dropped due to lack of evidence, but documents were later found that indicated Ruth Spaulding was going was about to go public with accusations uh, against Hodel of intentionally misdiagnosed misdiagnosing patients, billing them for laboratory tests, medical equipment, and prescriptions that weren't needed. Hodel was also accused of performing sort of illegal or back-alley abortions, and Steve Hodel believes that Elizabeth may have been one of his father's patients. The listening devices also recorded him saying, quote, This is the best payoff I've seen between law enforcement agencies, and I'd like to get a connection made in the DA's office. Interesting to say the least. Yeah. <sighs> Hodel was reportedly a wannabe artist, but just wasn't really talented enough or willing to put in the time to, you know, become a good artist. Um, but he was good friends with the artist uh, Man Ray, and some have drawn parallels between Man Ray's uh, famous photograph, Minotaur, and the way Elizabeth's body was posed with her hands above her head. Um, the way her body was cut and bisected had also has also been compared to a piece called Observatory Time, The Lovers. George Hadell died in 1999, but that hasn't stopped his son from continuing to investigate the case and present evidence that his father murdered Elizabeth Short. Steve Hadell has also put th forward the theory that his father was the Zodiac Killer, but we really don't have time to pull at that thread. Maybe in another episode. Maybe. <laughs> um, in 1997, the last living detective from the original investigation, Ralph Astell, was interviewed about the case and he claimed to have known who the killer was all along. Going as far as saying that he had solved the case within three weeks, but that he couldn't tell anyone. Make of that what you will. That sounds very much like someone who's had it rubbed in their face for 50 years. Yeah. That they couldn't solve a case and then they're like, oh no, we knew, but we couldn't tell anyone. Well, whilst I'm not denying that Hollywood and LA was corrupt as fuck, especially in the 40s and 50s, it still seems very much a... I was going to say get out of jail free card, but that's... <laughs> You know, kind of like, oh, well, we knew, but yeah. we couldn't say anything. Like, Yeah. I mean, it's definitely true that L.A. at this time 
there was a lot of crime and a lot of cover-ups, especially within the studio system, like studio fixers and stuff. But it just seems like this case was so big that, like, it would have come out in some way or another. And the FBI has more than 200 files on Elizabeth Short's murder, which have been made public. But the LAPD files remain sealed. If they are made public, that may shed a new light. But until then, the case remains unsolved. And that is the case of Elizabeth Short. What do you think? God. Who do you think did it? I don't know. I've listened to a a part of a podcast series about um, George Hodel. I forget what it's called. Root of Evil? Yeah, Root of Evil. That's what it's called. I think there's some very convincing evidence there. Yeah. But also, I think, you know, it's one of those where there's so much time has passed and so much, Mm -hmm. like, all these people are dead, you know? Yeah. I mean, so if Elizabeth Sharp was, was it 1924? So she'd be, she'd be 96 Mm -hmm. this year. So it is possible that whoever murdered her is still alive if they were young. Yeah. But, you know, it is possible. And if they're alive, they should be arrested oh, yeah. and charged and put on trial. Um, and, I mean, even if if they're not, like, if there is someone out there who, who knows information or who stumbles across information, like, it yeah. should be revealed. I just, it just... I think there's so much like mythology around the case yeah. that really muddles it. To me, it's kind of like um, the John Benet Ramsey case. Like, you've got all these people who have sort of like confessed to the crime, and it's yeah. definitely not them. And so it's just like there's probably some simpler explanation, but because there's all this other stuff and noise like it's so hard to find that out yeah i totally get that on the one hand the george huddell theory is quite convincing but then when steve huddell starts saying that his dad's also the zodiac killer that's a little weird it's like well it's very grasp almost starts to feel like grasping at straws yeah i agree with that i think if the lapd files are unsealed that will shed new light. Yeah. No, totally. But I think I think we'd have to wait a long time cuz this case is 73 years old, so I think we're going to have to wait till it's like 100 years. Yeah. have passed. I agree. Or something like that. But yeah, so check back with <laughs> us in like 27 years oh around the, you know, centenary of Elizabeth's death and we might have the files unsealed. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> Um, um yeah but i mean let's i said 200 files from the fbi and that still sheds no light yeah so. um and actually i bet that you can go read those fbi files online because they have a a huge database mm-hmm. yep famous cases fbi files so we'll link to that in the post yeah. for this episode um as expected we have not solved Elizabeth Short's murder in this uh, episode, but 
there were a few things to come out of her murder. One of them was that in February 1947, as a direct result of Elizabeth's murder, California became the first state requiring the registration of convicted sex offenders. And this was a breakthrough for LAPD psychiatrist Dr. J. Paul DeRiver, you may remember from earlier, um, who had been making recommendations for this legislation for a number of years. Uh, And the handling of Leslie Dillon's suspected involvement in the murder by the LAPD led to a grand jury investigation of the LAPD and their investigation of not only Elizabeth's murder, but of other unsolved murders in L.A. at the same time. If you like the show, as always, be sure to rate and review us on your podcast app, especially Apple Podcasts, and subscribe so you never miss a new episode. And if you want to get some cool Square Mile merch, we have a selection of really cool products with awesome designs, and you can find those at the link in our show notes or on our website. If you'd like to help us cover the costs of making the podcast and help us invest in the future of the show, you can join our Patreon page. Tiers start at just £1 per month. Every patron gets regular episodes a day early, a shout out on the show, priority case requests, and a lifetime discount on merch. And that's just for £1 a month. As tiers go up, you get even more, including bonus episodes and exclusive merch that you can't buy anywhere. Check that out at patreon.com forward slash square mile of murder. Links are in all the usual places. That is it for today. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We will be back next week. Yep. So thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye.